0: So growing up in the country that, uh, coincidentally, I just got back from last night, uh, we uh, had uh, what a lot of people in the country have, and it's called a junk pile. And in this junk pile is just where a whole lot of unwanted trash and junk end up uh, when you really can't haul it off or burn it. It just ends up uh, in uh, in the farm junk pile. Uh, and growing up in the summers, uh, us uh, little country boys always had a lot of time on our hands. And so my brother and I, one summer, thought that it would be really, really, really cool to build a go-kart out on the farm. And so we, as uh, any young boys who do, start scouring the farm to try to figure out, do we have all the components necessary to build this go-kart? And, you know, the first thing that caught my eye was that junk pile. And as I go over to that junk pile, I see a lawnmower wheel that's flat, and I grab that, and I see a couple of metal pipes that would make a real good axle. And I saw another steering wheel that they ripped off an old tractor, and I put all those together. And then I had four wheels, two pipes for an axle with a steering wheel, and I had a piece of plywood that was all chopped up that we used to build a shed the previous week. And I said, I think we're having a good start here. And I grab all that, I put the wheels on the ground, I put the axle uh, there through the wheels, and I I lay the piece of plywood on top of the the axles there, and I put the steering wheel right there on top of that piece of plywood, and I said, looking pretty good. I'm going to have my go-kart this time next week. Uh, But any adult uh, who would go back there towards that junk pile and, and look at what I had constructed, contrary to my hopes and my beliefs and and the things that I was looking forward to, anybody with a a sense of understanding and a sense of maturity and a sense of just uh, general knowledge would know that I did not have the components necessary to build a go-kart, and they definitely weren't found in the junk pile on my farm in the back of the property. And so, uh, as I, you know, matured that summer, as little, little young boys do, I looked and I said, you know what, Gage, my brother, I said, I don't think we can do this. I don't think that we have all the parts that we need to build this go-kart. And because of that, we kind of lost all the confidence that we had had, that we had at the beginning of that summer, that we could actually build something of substantial value. You know, there are a lot of things we can lose confidence in because we don't have the right components. But if you are a Christian in here, uh, you can rest assured that you being placed into a right relationship with God by Christ's death should lead you to an unshakable confidence. An unshakable confidence understanding and realizing that through Christ you have all the right components. That you have everything necessary to build a right relationship between you and God. To sustain your faith from today until glory, until Christ comes back for His church, you should rest assured and have utmost confidence that you have everything necessary for your life today and for your life eternal. But you see, there is a problem, however, and that is that lacking the confidence in your standing with God can undermine, at least in your life and in your mind and in your heart, it can undermine the sufficiency of Christ. And can even be evidence that your faith is not in Christ, but in something else entirely that cannot save you. You see, in Colossians 1, 21-23, and if you're not there already, you can flip open there in your Bible, or in your laptop if you have that open, or your iPad, all the things that God has given us these days to open our Bibles. Go ahead and open your Bible there to Colossians 1, 21-23. In these three short verses, Paul expresses his hope that the Christians there in Colossae would have full confidence in what Christ has done on their behalf. And he wants them to rest assured that in Christ is found all the components that puts us in a right relationship with God and that will sustain us not only today and tomorrow, but for the rest of our lives. And the challenge for you this morning is twofold. One is either to be encouraged that you do have all the right components, or to be challenged right? and to be pointed to Scripture to ask yourself the question, do I have the right components to make me right before a holy God? Because I hope you, when you stand before God, don't end up in the place that my brother and I ended up after a long summer looking at what we had constructed and realized this does not have all the right components. This does not build the substantial, necessary components of a go-kart. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that you would be encouraged through this sermon to say, I am so grateful that the components have been made right in my life through Christ Jesus, that I have a right relationship with God. Or that you would be convicted and persuaded to not be building your salvation on anything less and anything that is insufficient. Insufficient to put you in a right right relationship with God. as Pastor Evan read, and I'll reiterate here in verse 21. It says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, having confidence in Christ for us requires us, requires you and me to discover the components that we lack in and of ourselves. See, just like me, looking at those parts and realize, I don't even have a motor for this go-kart. How am I thinking I'm going to get on this go-kart and drive around? with? I don't have any fasteners that fasten this thing together. Once I roll this thing, it's going to fall apart. Well, it's good for you and for me to look at Scripture and discover, do we have all the components? Do we have all the components that we need that entrust that once we start living this Christian life, it's not going to fall apart? That it's going to stay sturdy, and it's going to be sufficient to get me through this life. If we're going to do that, the first thing we need to do is look at verse 21. Look at that verse with me. It says this, Paul to the Colossians, And you... Who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. What I want to do, I want to want you to focus on the first four words, and you who once, okay, this is a great news for the Christian, right? The great news for the Christian is you once were, right? You once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Right? For the Christian who has all the components right in their life, this was a used to. This was a once was. Okay. Of course, if if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been redeemed by Christ, if you haven't been reconciled to God through Christ, then you can put here, and you are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And so, the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that you were alienated? Well, it means this, that in the presence of God, outside of Christ, you're a stranger. You are a foreigner. when you are estranged. And imagine your relationship... With somebody who walks into your house who is unknown to you, is a stranger, and is a foreigner, and is a strange to you. Somebody who you know is not friendly toward you. How's that conversation going to go when they walk into your house? Not very well. See, that's the kind of relationship that we once had with a holy God. It gets worse. What it says here next is that we were hostile in mind. That, that Greek word can be rendered hostile or enemy. In your mind, you are an enemy of God. That is, not only in your, in your thinking, in your doing, all things, whether it was in your, your mind or doing evil deeds, right? You were thinking, you were in opposition, you were against God. And that's the life that we all lived outside of Christ that we were all enemies of God, that we were in opposition toward Him. Anything that He wanted to do, I was inclined to do the opposite that's the relationship that we had with god and it says at the end of this doing evil deeds right that our hostility in our minds and that that in that enemy mindset that we had actually played itself out it wasn't just in my head it wasn't just like i talked about god in my mind like i mean i really don't like that guy you know that guy really he irks me i don't really i don't want anything to do with him it was more than just your disposition in your mind in your thinking it actually carried out in you doing evil deeds, right? Your actions and behavior proved your hostility, right? It wasn't just, it wasn't a mind game. Just like being a Christian isn't just a mind thing, right? It's, a, it's an entire life transformation. It's an entire life transition. It doesn't look the same. And this is why. Because if being a Christian only meant in the mind, they wouldn't, be, he wouldn't, Paul wouldn't have been discussing here the understanding that you are hostile in mind and you were doing evil deeds, And so to be saved and to be redeemed means that I am no longer hostile in mind, that my mind is being conformed to Christ, and my life looks that way. And I'm living in a way that it honors Christ. I'm living in a way that is worthy of the gospel, as Paul says in Colossians 1. And so if if we want to really make sure we got all the components right, and it's good for us when we're building something to have some good directions. And it's good once you get to a certain point in the process of whatever you're building to look back and just make sure that everything has been put together correct so far. And that's what I want you to do this morning, and it's point number one on your outline. I want you to recall your opposition toward God. I want you to recall your own opposition toward God. Right? So if you're a Christian here, especially if you're a Christian, right, this is not a place you rest anymore. You don't sit in this space anymore. But it is good for the Christian as Paul's going to talk about later, right? to kind of look back, kind of check the, check the instructions, check things out and see, is this the way that it's supposed to look? Does my life look different? And it's good for us, in order to see that our life is looking different in the future and right now in our life, to look back and to ask the question, how was I in opposition toward God? James 4.4 4 says it this way. James 4.4 4 says, You adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I can just think of many ways that you and I, especially in our pre-Christian state before God, how we tried our best to fit in with the world. That if we could have one thing back in the day before Christ, if we could have one thing, it would be, I wish the world would accept me. I wish the world would befriend me and I wish I could befriend the world because it would make me a lot happier if everyone that I was around and everyone that I engaged with was in agreement with me. It would be utmost importance for me at one time before Christ that I could be a friend of the world. If I could just be a friend of the world, my life would be so much easier. You see, right right then, right? Because the question that people are going to ask, well, you know, I really didn't hate God. I never really... I never really just hated God. I never really had those problems with God. I, wasn't, I didn't have any animosity towards God. I wasn't you know, pulling spiritual weapons on God. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. I mean, e- even James is saying that, you know, it's not even that you're just using God's name in vain, right? It's not that you're cursing God out, right? It's, it's that you're being friends with the enemy of God. Like you're trying to befriend the thing that hates God, the world, society. When I try to befriend those things, I am in open rebellion against a God who's trying to redeem those things for Himself. And what good does it do for me to partner with the world when the world is in enmity with God? And so for us to recall your opposition, I'm sure there's some of you in here that's thinking, yeah, man, I, every, 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 every other word I used to say had uh, a G or a four-letter word at the end of it. And I, I really get that my life was very openly uh, hostile towards God. But what I want you to see in here is I don't care if that was you or if you're the person over here who says, I didn't really do much. I'm, I'm saying I don't think that's true. I think if you really, really dug down and realized that, uh, for instance, this, uh, when you neglect to worship God fully, you are ignoring God as if He were not God at all. Right. So even for you, it's like, you know, I just, I just didn't know. Well, guess what? Like When you're not worshiping God for who He is, if you're not realizing and seeing and perceiving God for who He truly is, uh, you're in open hostility towards God. And you ask, well, why? Well, because God demands that His name be known. God demands that His name be glorified. And that He demands that He be put in the preeminent place in your life. right, First and foremost of all things. That's literally what we just talked about. And so any anytime that we are not living... Right in subjection to the lordship of Christ, we are in opposition towards God. Because knowing you and knowing me, if there is something in your life that Christ is not lord over, that thing very quickly will turn into sin. Wouldn't it? Think about it. Uh, when you think about your life. All the things that you do not submit to Christ. Right? Your relationships, your sexuality, right? uh, your job, uh, your parenting, Uh, right, your friendships, right, your own personal habits, any of those things that aren't subjected under the authority of Christ, how long does it take those to to dive real deep into sin in your life? Not very long. You see, that's why I'm telling you, it's not just for you who point the finger at God and say you're just a mean, mean man. You know, this is all of us who openly live in rebellion against God, and it's so important for Christians to recall that, to say there was a reason that I needed Christ. There was a a reason that I could never be brought into right relationship with God apart from Christ doing what I could not do, and that is living in harmony in the perfect will of God, something I could have never have done. You see, I want you to think of those areas in your own life that were opposed to God, and maybe you jot some of those down on your note sheets as you get ready for your life group this week in your small group. I mean, these are areas that you're going to be asked to at least uh, you know, abbreviate in a, a sentence or two to talk about some areas in your life that you were opposed to God. And then what I want you to do after that is I want you to remember the damage of your sin and hostility toward God. I want you to remember those things. I want you to recall and remember just the areas in your life that caused so much damage, right, so much destruction in your family life, right, in your job. I mean, some of you in here, you, you lost jobs because of your sin. In your hostility, right? I mean, these are things that not only separated you from God, but separated you from from other people, right? And God makes it clear that, that He wants you both to be reconciled with Him and other people. You now He says in the Sermon on the Mount that He says, if you have your gift before the altar of God and, and you realize that you, your brother has wronged you, you have wronged your brother. You need to get up and leave the altar. Go first, be reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. So what I want you to realize here, just because you're saying, I have just, you know, I to, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, Hayden, but I just, I've never really hated God. No, but you have lived unreconciled to so many people. And you have lived in open rebellion and sin to so many people. And I'm saying those are just outward signs of an inward sickness that you cannot fix on your own. And I just want to point those out because you need to recall those things. And if you're a non-Christian in here, if you're one of those people who said, I've never repented of my sins and trusted in Christ and, and, and began living a life uh, not for myself but for the Lord, then I just want you to pay attention right now. Like, Look at your open rebellion. I mean, Look in your life. And you'll see very quickly that your life isn't under the subjection of the Lordship of Christ. And as a matter of fact, like, you don't even acknowledge God more than when you have to when you're here on a Sunday morning or you're praying over your food before you stick it in your mouth. You need to remember the damage of your sin. And this is, a good, this is an important component. right? If you want to be sure you're right with God, this is such an important component in your life. And it's so important because if you can't keep remembering why you needed saving, it's going to be real, real difficult to do the things that Paul says afterwards. So you have to first understand and recall the opposition that you had towards God so they can put that component right where it needs to be. See, recalling our animosity towards God is necessary if we want to understand the significance of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And that's really what this comes down to. You want to understand the significance of Christ? And that's what so many people ask. What's the significance of Jesus? Why is Jesus so important? Like, why does everybody worship Christ? Well, let me tell you, friends. You have to first understand your animosity towards God before you're ever going to understand why Christ was necessary. And if you don't spend time thinking about that, you're not going to have a full understanding of why Christ was necessary to come here to live in our place, and to die on our behalf. Look at verse 22. So we had, you once were, and here's the good news for the Christian. Here's a joyful, great blessing that we have found in Christ Jesus that it says here, He has now. So here you were, you were over here, you were were alienated, you were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and now, the good news is He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. So much to say in this one verse. but I just want to start out by by pointing out something that you can't see in the English English translation of this that is just so uh, Colossian. It's so Paul preaching to the Colossians. And it's, it's this. That word reconciled. And you remember, throughout this entire series, I've, I've told you to uh, circle the words all and every and all things. Right? The fact that, that Paul is, is impressing upon the Colossians that Jesus is sufficient for all things. There is nothing that is outside of the authority and control and sovereignty of Christ our Lord. And so it's, it's just interesting, and it's, it's, very, uh, it's, very con- it's something worth considering here. When we look at this word reconciled in the Greek, it is the word apokatalosio apo katalaso, okay? And this word has this prefix, apo, which just means fully, right? It means fully, and then catalasso means reconciled. And this is the cool thing, because Paul, in so many other letters, in the, in the letter to the Romans, in the letter to the 2 Corinthians, uh, he, he used the word catalasso, just reconciled. So over and over again, Paul has just used the word catalasso, saying, you've been reconciled, you've been reconciled, you've been reconciled. But he knows who he's talking to. He knows who he's writing to of the Christians in Colossae who have been having a struggle. Who have been having a struggle considering, is Christ sufficient for all things? And so he doesn't just use that word catalasso. He puts that word apo in front of it saying, listen, he does not just reconcile you, friends. He fully reconciles you. Like there is nothing left outside of his reconciliation in your life when you've been reconciled fully to God. And I want, you, I, wanted to pay, I want you to pay attention to that because Paul could have just said, yeah, you, you've been reconciled. But Paul has been so adamant like this, like, I want you to know that in Christ you are fully reconciled. There is nothing left outside of that reconciliation. That all these, the, the opposition that you had towards God in Christ, those are reconciled. right? All of the family destruction that you've done, all the sin that is evident in your life, in Christ that is fully reconciled. And Paul wants everybody to know that. And this morning, I want you to know that, that everything has been fully reconciled in Christ. That's why it's so important for you to recall your opposition toward God. Because if you don't recall your opposition toward God, you're going to be like, there's not much to reconcile there. I mean, maybe I could get a little broom and sweep up the crumbs, but there's not a lot of problems in my life. And what I'm saying is, like, you need more than a broom. Right? You, need a, you need a wrecker. right? right? You, need a, you need a bulldozer to come clean up the mess that you've made. Right? You've got to realize that it took Christ fully reconciling you. Not just some parts of your life or the bad parts of your life. Your whole life. It took Christ to fully reconcile all of you, everything about your life. And Paul wanted to iterate that there with the word reconciled to the Colossians. And he says, And this full reconciliation happened in his body, right? In Christ's body, you have been fully reconciled. And here's, here's what, what this is pointing towards. It's pointing towards this right here. Romans 5, and you don't have to flip there, but you can jot it down. Romans 5. Uh, Paul is saying to the church in Rome, by one man sin reigned in the world. Right? By one man, one man's body. Through the body of one man, sin entered the world, and we know that guy as Adam. Right? Through Adam, sin had entered the world, and so we inherited as the, he, as Adam being our federal head. Right? The federal head of of all humanity. After that, we inherited the sins of Adam. Not only because you know he did all the wrong; I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't just inherit sin, I inherited the sinful nature, the central disposition of Adam. And so all those things that he was and that he got disciplined and he got cursed for there in the garden has now been transitioned to us because of his body, right? Because of his actions, because of his life. Now that is on me. And so when we talk about by his body, that's so important. Because it was by one man's body that sin had been brought into the world. And as Romans 5 also says, and by one man's life, right? We can reign eternal. By one man, death reigns, Adam. And by one man, sin has been abolished. Sin has been paid for. It's been dealt with. The price has been paid. And we can be freed from our sin. You see... Christ is undoing the curse that has been given to us in the garden by his body. And so when Paul is using the word his body here, I, I, want you, I don't want you just to pass over it thinking, okay, I, I get it, it's a Christianese word in his body, I get it, I get it, I get it, I'm close to Christ. No, no, it, was, it required his body. You're like, why did Jesus have to come down? Because he had to take on the curse that was given to the body, right? To Adam, Okay, And so Him coming down in His incarnation, in Him being fully God and fully man, He took on the punishment that we deserved and took on the curse. Right? Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Right? Christ took that punishment, that curse, for us. And it required His body. And not only did it require His body, what else did it require? His death. Right? That Christ's death was God's solution to bring you and me into right relationship with Him. By justice being served and and this is what I this is because this is the objection I always have in my life if I'm thinking about people who may not believe what we're saying like I get it you're like why well why did Jesus have to die why did Jesus have, I mean couldn't have God figured out a different way and what I'm saying is is justice had to be served and you cannot when you preach the gospel when you share the gospel with people and you tell people about God you can't skip over justice being served Because if justice doesn't have to be served, then you're right. There could be a million other ways, I guess, if God so chose. But we couldn't because justice had to be served, right? You were in opposition to God. You were an enemy of God, right? And there had to be a payment for your hostility. You were caught in your transgressions, right? You were a prisoner of war, and justice had to have been paid. There is no way around it. You can't have a just God who doesn't require a price to be paid for the penalty of sin. Right? And I've said this over and over again, but you you want that. That's what you want in our society. You want a just society. Right? You want people, when they commit a crime, to stand before a tribunal, right, to answer for their sins. Right? And when somebody commits murder and they stand before the they stand before the tribunal and they say, guilty, life in prison, what do you do? You clap. Right, we clap. We're like, "Yeah, that's good." But but when we start being the ones, right, who are standing before the tribunal of God, and God says, "You're guilty," and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, me? I didn't. Well, what did I do?" And I'm saying, "You're guilty, right? You're you're guilty," and that's why Christ is so necessary. And this is why I think I hope it opens your eyes, even as a Christian, for you to sit here and think, "Wow, you're right. This is, whew, I was completely guilty, indicted on all accounts, guilty as charged." And for us to just look at this scripture and be like, wow, you know, we have now been reconciled by his death. Like, I deserve that death. Like, like, death was the penalty, right? It's like the death penalty, right? You killed someone, you go to court, you get the death penalty, right? We don't do that anymore in our society, but it was very common throughout history. Right? And throughout history, when people read this, they're like, oh, I get that, right? I was wrong, but I didn't pay for my wrong, but somebody had to. Okay, this is the same concept here, and it was by his death that we have been reconciled to God. And here's how. Like I, and here's what I want you to pay attention to. It's the last half of verse 22. Look at it with me. Follow along at the last half of verse 22. Right? And it's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Right? But it required his death. And, and can, I, can I go back there real, just real quick? I want you to jot down this reference. Hebrews 9. And you say, you, you ask the question. I just want to go back for a half a second. Right? Why did it require his death? Okay. Hebrews 9, 22. Hebrews 9:20. You can flip there with me. Hebrews 9:22. I'm going to read verse 22 and I'm going to skip down to verse 28 to show you the relationship between justice being served and the death of Christ. There in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says this: Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? I mean, that should be a, a you should bookmark that verse in your Bible. You should highlight that, because why did Jesus have to die? Well, because of this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It was true in the Old Testament, and that's why you had the Day of Atonement. That's why you brought a spotless lamb, and it was, it was slaughtered there at the altar. The blood was sprinkled. Uh, the uh, high priest sprinkled himself, so he could enter into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God for one time of year. It took the blood to forgive sins, And and Hebrews tells you that's a shadow of the things to come. that's That's a shadow of the true realities. And the true reality is this, that verse 28, so Christ, having been offered as a sacrifice, right, once to bear the sins of many, there it was, that he was offered once to bear the sins of many, to bear your iniquities, to bear my iniquities, right? And he did that, that's what he did once. And it says here, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Come on, that's the good news, guys. Right? Like we've been under the judgment of God. Christ paid that penalty on our behalf for those who returned away from their sins, a life lived in themselves, and they turned toward God. Right? Those people. right? When Christ comes back, he's not there to deal with our sin anymore. Now, don't get me wrong, he's going to reconcile the rest of the world. But for you and I as Christians, he's coming back to do what? To save those who eagerly wait for him. That's some good news. And here's how He's going to do it. And this, Now we're back to the second half of verse 22. He's going to do it by this way. To present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. He's going to come save us and He's going to present us before a holy God and we're going to be these things. Dirty, stinky, nasty, deplorable, and, and awful. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. No, when, when Christ comes and gets us and He presents us before God the Father, we're going to be holy and blameless and above reproach. We're going to stand before God and being clothed, and imputed the righteousness of Christ, we're going to stand before God approved. Not because of our life, not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did. Right? And that's, that's the good news that we have. And that's why every Christian's life ought to exude a kind of, a kind of thanksgiving to God that, that builds confidence in the life of the church. Right? And like, What do you mean the church? I thought you are talking about me. I am talking about you, but if you're a Christian, you're part of the church. Right? Right? This type of understanding... right? Your life ought to just exude a kind of thanksgiving. It should be very apparent. I mean, you should just be gleaming this morning. You woke up and say, I'm justified. And you put on your clothes. I can't wait to walk out in my sanctification and be with the church this morning. Right? I mean, you, people should see it in your face that, that you, you are living for the Lord and you are, just, you are just so grateful and thankful that God has brought you into a new direction. Right? That God has changed your life. You were an enemy of the cross and now you are a child of God. Right, your life ought to exude this kind of thanksgiving, and that thanksgiving should build confidence in the life of the church. When people look at your life, when you look at my life, you should say, "Whew, I'm I'm very I'm much more confident in my faith today." Like I, because I was with you, I was much more confident in my faith today, and that's why I, I want you to think that way. I want you to think that way in your own life, and I put it this way as point number two: that you need to give thanks for God's new direction in your life. Right. You need to be doing that, right? Once you recall your opposition towards God, another component that you need in your life, right, is that you need to give thanks for God's new direction in your life, right? Of course, all these components, right, these aren't things you can do to be saved. The component that's going to that bring salvation is called Jesus Christ. But these are these components that you can have to kind of like a check engine. Like, Am I doing this? Am I really in Christ? Well, here it is. Are you giving thanks for God's new direction in your life? Is that something you're doing? When I was in, in high school, maybe I was in middle school. I was in middle school. I was barely in middle school. I was in middle school, and we were driving in the back roads uh, north of uh, north of Dallas, like way in north of Dallas, like way north. It was just pastures, and we were driving. And I was sitting in the back seat. My parents were up in the front seat, and my brother, two brothers, were over here to my right. And I look, and I used to love animals. This is a good backstory for that. I loved animals. And as I look out in, you know, over my dad's shoulder into the road, I see this tiny little dog just coming head on, like head on to us. And she is just galloping down the middle of the road. And I'm like, stop! And my, my dad hits the brakes. And I, I, we stop the car. I open the door. That dog jumps right in, in my lap, lays down. I shut the door and we drive off. That's, a, that was a, that's what country guys call an adoption, okay? <laughs> we had adopted a dog, and her name was Missy. And she was a mutt, and she was, had so many problems. You want to talk about baggage? I found out, I found out a couple weeks later why Missy got dropped off in the country. A couple weeks later, I, we look out there, and there are eight puppies. And I said, oh, okay. Now, let me tell you how thankful that dog was that we picked her up, okay? And I'm not all big on dogs having personalities and, you know, talk to me later about animals going to heaven, blah, blah, blah. This isn't about that, okay? All right, this is not what this is about, all right? This is about simply, I have never seen an animal express gratitude in my whole life the way that dog did. Like, I fully understand that, that Missy recalled her dire situation before we picked her up. Like, and for the rest of her life, I mean, there was not a time in our life where when we walked through the door, she wasn't right there. She wanted to love on us. She wanted to be there for us. I mean, it got to this point, and you're gonna, you may believe me or not. This is what my dad told me, okay? Uh, she died when I, well, actually, just uh, I don't, a year ago. So that dog, okay, number one, she lived so long, she had heartworms. She was just crippled. I mean, it was bad. I mean, it got to the point where we took her to the vet, and the vet says, this dog should be dead. They said, this dog is only alive because it loves you guys so much. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what the vet said, my, not my words his, okay? That this dog loved us so much that it did not want to die because they said, there's no reason, we can't do anything. Uh, she just wants to be with you guys. And literally, the night that this dog died, my dad stays up real late, and he called me. I, I was living in California at the time, and he calls me on the phone. He said, and he was, my dad was markedly upset. I mean, he was, he was upset. And, uh, you know, we knew she was going to die soon, and she's over there laying in the living room. And uh, my dad calls me after she died and said, this is how it happened. You're not going to believe me. This is how it happened. Okay, that dog, shaking. you know, she's very dramatic too. Very thankful, but very dramatic. And she was shaking and shaking and shaking. And like right before she died, she got up on her feet and she looked at my dad. <laughs> so dramatic. She lifted her paw up to my dad. Just like this. She put her paw down, she laid down, and died. Immediately. Like immediate I mean that was literally how it went. And when my dad told me that, you know, some of you know that some of you in here can may think, nah, like you didn't know Missy. Like she was dramatic. Like she was like she wanted her death to be all about her, you know. <laughs> but the one thing that we always talked about, Missy, was, man, that dog was so thankful. Like that dog literally lived so it could be with us. Because of what we did for her. And I just I want you to think, like, I mean, do you think about that in your relationship with God? I mean, do you literally live right for God? Like when you wake up in the morning, is your tail wagging and you're like, I can't believe I get to be with you today. You know, God, this is so good. Like you saved me. I jumped into your car, you shut the door, and we drove off. And you took me with all my baggage. You took me with all the things that were wrong with me, and you love me. And then my, my baggots kind of came out, you know, when I had all those puppies, you know, my life kind of like spilled out before and you saw all my dirtiness and you still, you saved me, you redeemed me. Like, why would I not live in great, exuberant thankfulness for the new direction you've given in my life? Right? I mean, I think we all take a lesson from Missy this morning to think, man, that should be our life. Grateful and thankful. And sure, you're all dramatic and God knows it, okay? just like Missy is, okay? Like, we all know it. But the fact that we can all live. Thanking God for our new direction. How important should that be for you and me? Uh, Paul says it this way in the the next chapter in Colossians. Colossians 2, 6-7. You can jot that down. Colossians 2, 6-7. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I mean, that's really the call Of a Christian, right? As you received Christ, how did you receive Him? As a sovereign Lord of all creation, and also my Savior, that I turned away from my sins and trusted in Him and His uh, and His substitutionary death, right? That I trusted in Him, and in that same way that I received Him, I now walk in Him, right? I don't chase after other things. I don't try to jump in other people's cars, right? You know, I I am all for Him. I'm walking for Him in the same way that I went after Him. Right, and how am I going to continue in that, being rooted and being built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you're taught? That's a great thing. You're in here and you're being taught. Well, grow in that, be rooted and built up in the way that you're being taught right now, and then at the end of the day, here's what you need to do: you need to be abounding in thanksgiving. You know who abounds? Gazelles, right? You turn on Discovery Channel; they're abounding. You know they're they're bounding. Okay. It's the same. I want you to paint that picture. Like they're just so, I mean, uh, the, the, how extravagant they are when they're bounding across the prairie, right? And across the safari, like that's how thankful you need to be, right? You just need to be abounding in Thanksgiving. It needs to be something that people can't, people shouldn't be able to say, I think they're thankful, but I'm not sure. No, 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 no. It should be blatantly obvious that you're being thankful, right? Uh, there's a prayer I pray in my own life and I get it from Psalm 51:12, 12. Uh, and, and the and the verse says, to, to me, or restore to me the joy of my salvation. And of course, in a King David's situation right now, he's living in utter sin, right? And he is standing, repenting before God in this imprecatory psalm, in uh, Psalm 51. Uh, but it is something that I take out in my own life and pray for this regularly. Because I know that if I need to give thanks to God, and exuberantly need to give thanks to him, I need to have a joy in my salvation that is very obvious and palpable, right? And I always pray this, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, give me joy for the redemption that I have received. I don't want it to be a one-time thing where I can look back through my binoculars into my past and say, yeah, there it is, it's still there. No, and it's like, I want him to restore to me the joy that I had then, even now. And that's what my, your thanksgiving should never, like, should never pass up what happened to you at salvation, right? You always need to have the joy of your salvation restored to you, right? Secondly, right, your your attitude should ref, be reflected in actions, Right? I mean, I've heard churches, I've heard preachers say, you know, Christianity is about, it's about your attitude, it's not about actions. And I'm thinking, okay, tell you, wait until your spouse tells you that. That's ah, about how I feel about you. It's not really what I do for you, okay? All right? Or, or Missy's, Missy's running, you know, rewind, Missy's running down the road, and I'm like, I'd love to take you, but I can't, see you, love you, and drive off, right? That, that would be sad, wouldn't it? And some of you said, all. Oh. Well, all you and your relationship with God, right? I mean... I mean, how, you need to be understanding that your attitude should be reflected in your actions. Right? You say you love the Lord, but do you? Number one, do you? And then you do you live that out, right? If, if you tell your spouse, "Hey, I love you," and they're gonna be able to look at you real quick and say, "Sorry, we don't live that way." Yeah, you may tell me you love me, but you don't. Even Jesus says this. If you love me, you will. You will obey me, right? You love me, you will obey me, right? I mean, this isn't rocket science here, guys. Right? I believe I believe that you are justified by faith alone. Sure. All right, but but faith alone does not remain alone. Right, faith alone. Right, you be saved by faith. Uh, after you're saved, what are you going to do? You're going to do a lot like Missy. Did you know what Missy did to get saved? Nothing. Okay, nothing. But we did it anyway. All right, and then the rest of her life looked like exuberant thanksgiving, and that should be the life that you and I are living in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. And and thirdly, I put it this way: after your attitude should reflect, be reflected in your actions. I said this: you need to raise awareness of God's goodness. Right? That's a you know, that's a catchphrase in, in our in our culture. Right? You need to raise awareness for this. We need to raise awareness for this. I mean, you go to Facebook, you go to Instagram, you go to on online. You, we need to raise awareness for everything, right? But what more important thing in the world could we be raising awareness for than the goodness of God? Right? That God has said, "I'm going to make a way for sinners, for enemies of me, to be made right with me through the death of Christ." Like, I'm I'm all for raising awareness for that, right? I'm all for everyone has a problem with God, right? Everybody. Like, I mean, this isn't, you know, uh, God forbid, cancer, which so many people deal with, right? I mean, there's a large portion of our society that deals with cancer. There's a larger percentage of society that deals with sin and judgment towards God, right? I mean, all these things, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever that, that, that issue that you think is so important to raise awareness for, that you're sharing posts about it, that you're wearing ribbons for it, uh, that you got bracelets for it, that, you, that, you're, that you're parading around for. I mean, to think about this. There is nothing more obvious and more universal than man's sin problem with a holy God. And if there is anything in our life that we should be raising awareness for, it's the goodness of God. And that's what people always want to talk about. Well, God's so mean. He wants to punish people. No, He wants to save people. Right? You not desiring to be saved is your fault. And God's tr- God said, my will is that none should perish. But all should come through salvation. Now, is that going to happen? No. Because people want to point their finger at God saying, God, why didn't you make a way? He did make a way. Right? And what we have to do is understand that, that we were enemies of God. And that he made a way for us. And we need to raise awareness of that, of that goodness. <clears throat> you see, giving thanks to God for his saving work in your life is paramount for Christians. Right? It can't be a, a, a subsidiary. It can't be a tertiary. It can't be something outside of the main thing in your life. The main thing in your life should be giving thanks to God for his saving work in your life. Right? And I'm going to tell you, as you're, you're doing that, that closeness that you're going to build with God, right? when you're thanking God, when, you, when, you, when you're thankful for your spouse or your kiddos, your kids say thank you a lot, you know what you do? You kind of grow a bond with them, don't you? you? You grow grateful and thankful. Well, the same thing happens in your relationship with God. When, when, you, are, when you are close to God, because you're generating a a heart of gratefulness, it's going to give you confidence in Christ. It it will. The more you say, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've done. And you recall your sin, and you recall what God's done for you, you're going to keep thinking, wow, Christ is amazing. Like Christ is great; he has just done so much, right? And that confidence is going to keep you in a right relationship with God. You hear what I just said? Keep you in a right relationship with God. Not that you're going to lose your salvation. We're not talking about losing salvation here. We're talking about you staying in step with the Spirit, right? You staying in step of what God wants in your life. You continually looking at your past and saying, "I don't ever want to go back to that." You keep thanking God for what He's done in your life. You're going to keep walking in faithfulness to God, and it's going to happen because you keep reminding yourself how grateful you are for the. Sacrifice of Christ. And I want you to hang on to that. I want you to hang on to that because I want you to look at verse 23 real quick. I mean, verse 23, it just whacks people to no end. I mean, people just, I mean, you, people lose it over verse 23. And I want you to pay attention and stay on topic on verse 23 with me right here. It says this, right? That, that Christ is going to, remember, this is, this is the context, right? Christ is going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God if indeed you continue in the faith, Right? You're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So when you're reading this, and maybe you're not a student of the Bible, you read this for the first time, you're saying, Christ just gave me an if-then statement, right? Like, if I do this, then I will do this for you, right? Like, if I do good for God, God's going to do good for me. That's called bad theology, right? That's, not, that's unbiblical theology. Okay? Well, you need to understand first is the context here, because so many of us always, we want to jump into the Bible, and we don't want to think anything of what's being said in Scripture. Right? We want to think, well, how does this reply to me? This is all about me. Let me read the Bible in context of me, 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 me. The Bible wasn't written in context of you, 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 you. The Bible was written in the context of who it was written to. And so in this context, it's to the Colossians. So you need to understand why it was necessary for this to be said to the Colossians, and then we can go apply it to our life, right? So here's what we need to do, okay? We need to understand something, that the Colossians were being pressured to chase after other gods gods, right? They were being pressured to chase after other gods. They were being pressured to chase after other beliefs. I mean, this is, y'all know this, if you've been here for a few weeks, like the Colossians were dealing with this. I mean, people were coming to them with all these beliefs and all these add-ons to their faith. And all Paul has been trying to say is, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. You don't need these other things, right? And what Paul is saying here is he's looking and he's saying, this phrase nails down the sufficiency of Christ. He's saying this, you don't need anything else. If all you do is continue in your faith, if all you do is continue in your faith. That's it. You don't need to add anything. There's nothing. Like, you need to, as cha- uh, chapter 2 just said earlier, right? as you received Christ, walk in Him. That's it. You're done. And right here he's saying this. Like, if you just continue in your faith, that faith that you first believed in Christ, that's it. That's all you do. And here's what that looks like that you're being stable in your faith, that you're being steadfast in your, sh- your faith, that you're not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you're not saying there's a little bit of Gnosticism over here, which if, if you've been following with us, that Gnosticism, that, that knowledge, that new knowledge, this knowledge that people were claiming to have that added on to uh, the Christian faith or added on to all these things that was unnecessary. Paul's saying you've got to be stable, and you've got to be steadfast, and you can't be shifting from the hope of the gospel. And taking on these other beliefs over here, which I'm telling you, there's plenty of those in our culture today, I mean there's plenty of people who will like to add on a little something to Jesus in our culture, right? Jesus in my family, Jesus in my job, health and wealth and prosperity, if I just believe in Christ, he'll also give me all these things over here. I mean, I can keep going on and on and on, right? The point being and the point Paul's making here is that you need to continue in the faith that you have, right? And that is in Christ Jesus. And you need to be stable and you need to be steadfast in that faith. You can't be shifting, right? You can't be like a wave tossed in the sea, right? That's, that, that person should not believe they will receive anything is what James says, isn't it? Anybody who is tossed back and forth. And that's why Paul keeps hammering down, Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Turn away from your sins and trust in Christ because He's all-sufficient. And he nails that down by saying this, if you continue in the faith, Christ is going to present you holy and blameless and without blemish before God. You see, I put it this way on point number three. You, you need to be sure about your salvation. And this is usually where people have objections with this verse. It's the people, you know, nobody who is continuing in their faith, who are stable and steadfast, anybody who is not shifting from the hope of the gospel, they look at this and they say, yeah, that makes sense, right? Because if I'm continuing in the faith, that's, that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? It's people who have questions about their faith, who say, what do you mean? So that means if I'm not living for Christ, I could have lost my salvation, like, what does it mean that if I continue, i got to do this? i got to do this thing to receive this thing? And I just want you to follow along with me if that's an objection that you have, right? And i put it this way. You're going to find nothing wrong with this phrase if you're continuing in the faith. And that's the point. And that's the point Paul's making to the Colossians, right? If you're following Christ, you're going to look at this and say, yeah, all right, if I continue in the faith, I know that, that's, that, that's, that what, that's what happens when I am justified and sanctified. The end of my sanctification is the theology word glorification. I know at the end of my sanctification, I'm going to be glorified. And that means as I have continued in my faith throughout my whole life, at the end of my life, I'm going to be glorified in heaven. I'm going to be presented holy and, and blameless and without blemish. That, that's like, it's common knowledge. And of course that's going to happen, right? We all know that, that if I am saved and I'm being sanctified, I'm also going to be glorified. We know that. And, that's, and Paul is just iterating that again, right? <clears throat> but, but here's the problem, right? If you're not continuing in your faith, and this is the attention I want to get. I want to get your attention if you're not continuing in your faith, if you aren't stable, if you aren't steadfast, if you are shifting from the hope of the gospel, this verse should get your attention. And that's what, you know, a lot of pastors want to skip over verses like this because it's too hard. Now, these verses are, are, are what the Bible's there for, right? It's for us to look at that and say, you got a problem with this verse? There's a problem with your theology or there's a problem with your relationship with God and let's jump into that. Let's get into that. And this is what I'm saying here. Like there is a problem if when you read this, you're like, oh man, I think that's, that's me. What happens if I'm the one who isn't continuing in my faith? What if I'm not stable and I'm not steadfast and I am shifting from the hope of the gospel, right? Paul makes clear that in Christ, your salvation is sufficient to sustain, right? In Christ, that salvation you have in him is sufficient to sustain you and give you confidence in whose you are, right? You are God's. If you have been reconciled to God through Christ, you're God's and there's nothing that can pluck you out of that. That's, That's what Christ says. Nothing can pluck you out of my hand, nothing, right? That's the good news, right? We are all, we're saved and you can't lose your salvation. But here we go. If you cannot shake the uneasy impression that your faith is not sustained in Christ, like if you've been here for the last couple weeks or even right now, and you have this uneasy feeling thinking, I don't think that my faith is sustained in Christ. right? You may find that you are, as 1 John 2.19 says, not of us. And I want to flip you to a, a verse real quick. Go to 1 John 2.19, towards the end of your Bible. I, I, want, I want you to, I mean, this is another one of those verses that you should bookmark. 1 John 2.19. If you can't shake this uneasy impression that your faith is not sustained in Christ, which just would really mean that you have no faith at all if your faith isn't in Christ or you have a faith that does not save, here's what it says in 1 John 2.19. It says, they went out from us. Who? The people who didn't live out their faith. The people who, right here, who did not continue in their faith. Right. They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us, right? and I, w- I want you to pay attention to this, right? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Do you hear what I'm saying here? All right? But they were not. That it might become plain that they all are not of us. Okay, again, let me tie this up. Right? If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, right? You're going to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God. But if you're not, right? If you go out from among us, you're like I haven't gone to church in a hundred years. Uh, you know, I don't live for the Lord. My life looks nothing like the life of a Christian. But when I was a little kid, I prayed a prayer and I bowed my head and I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. I want you to look at verse. First John two nineteen. They went out from us, right? They may have prayed a prayer. They may have been baptized when they were little. They may have they may have thought all these things, but they went out from us because they were not of us, right? They left because they were not of us. That means they weren't Christians, right? For if they had been Christians, they would have continued with us, and that's the same thing that Paul is saying here. If you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, it says that you're of us, right? I'm not saying that. Oh, you met you made a mistake and. You know, you made a mistake last week, and you're no longer of us. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying here, okay? You all make mistakes. Let's go back into our record books and see what all the mistakes we made last week, okay? am not talking about this. We're talking about a blatant going out, not among us, not of us, not among us, all away from us, right? That's what we're talking about. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and here's the good news, and this is the good news I want to show you. They went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us, that they are not of us, and here's the good news. Right? Churches need to see that people who leave the church are not of us. Right? You need to see that. And this is, this is, the, uh, this is the admonishment that I want to give you guys. You've got to quit saying that everybody you know is a Christian. You can't. you've got to stop saying that, right? Because you're doing nothing but hurting them. Right? What you've got to do is look at, say, what does the Bible say about this? Like, what does the Bible say about what it means to be a Christian? Well, here's a great example, right? If they went out from of us, they're not of us, okay? So, like, if you don't see them plugged into a local church, right? If you don't see them living out their faith, if you don't see fruit attached to the life of their salvation, like, you have really, really, really great uh, evidence to say, I can at least, maybe, maybe you don't want to point your finger at them because you, maybe you're not a place in your life where you can look and say, I, I'm concerned about your salvation. Can, uh, can we go talk about this? But at least you're at a place where you don't try to confirm their salvation. Right? When they say, well, what about old, uh, what about old you know, Joe over there? Well, Joe's Christian. I was there when he was eight years old. Walked down that aisle, prayed his prayer, got baptized the next day. He's saved. Okay. At least you can say, I won't do that anymore. Right? At least don't confirm the salvation of people who are not of us. Right? And, that's, and you know this to be true because you're like, oh, he's mean. No, you're mean because you think this too. Right? How, many people in Texas, how many people in Texas think they're Christians? Almost all of them. I'm from Texas, mind you. Okay. Born and raised in Greenville, Texas. Okay, all right. Everybody in Texas is a Christian. Raise your hand if you think everybody in Texas is a Christian. Mean? Why are you so mean? Right? And all I'm saying is, then just, just trust your instincts here and just stop confirming people's salvation who aren't saved. Help them see that if they go out from us, they are not of us. I'm not talking about people who aren't there, there. There's a lot of caveats. If they aren't discipled, if they truly got saved, but no one discipled them and brought them up and tried to teach them you know, how you ought to live as a Christian, I get, there are these exceptions. But what I'm going to say is there are exceptions and they're not the rule. And you're like, okay, how, prove all this to me. I will, okay? Because Christianity, right? Our faith is not a toss-up 50-50 chance, right? It's not, I'm, I'm going to throw a ball to the end zone and I'm either going to get it or we're not, right? That's not Christianity, right? Christianity is like, I am 100% sure I'm going to make it into eternity with God, and I have an unshakable confidence that Christ will be back for me when the time comes. Right? I mean, That's, uh, that's what, what Scripture teaches right, for Christians. Right? God's Word serves to both confirm the salvation of believers and get the attention of those who think they are believers. That's what Scripture is going to do. Right? It's going to confirm you if you're, if you're a Christian, and it's going to get your attention if you're not. Uh, and I put it this way, if God saves you, he sustains you, okay? You've got to know that. Then no one's up here talking about you're going to lose your salvation, right? It's the theology known as the perseverance of the saints, right? We know that if you are a Christian, God is going to persevere you. That is true. I'm trying to say that people think they're Christians who aren't, and I want to flip you to one more scripture this morning to show you. I want you to go to Luke 8. Luke chapter 8. And if, you, if you're a Bible student, you're going to know I'm flipping you to the four soils, right? The four soils. And these four soils represent four types of people that Christ wants to address. He wants to address all four of them. All four of them. And he, he has something to say to every one of them. And this is what he says, Luke 8, starting in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathered, and the people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, this is what he said in a parable, a sower went out, a planter, right, to sow seeds. And he sowed some, and they fell along the path, and they were trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, and he called out, Who? He who has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said this, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those people who are here, uh, I say these things in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may, may not understand. And now he's going to explain the parable. For those of you who are like, I have no idea what was just said. Good news, is he's about to tell you. Verse 11. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Right? The word of God. This is God's words. This is the seed. All right? The one seed comes along the path. Uh, the one along the path are those who have heard. These people who heard the word of God, right? They heard the gospel preached, and here's what happens. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. So, is the is the person who received the word along the path? Is that person a Christian? No, right? No, right? Right? It says it says right there, may not believe and be saved. All right. So we have one sower, right, who is not saved, even though they heard it. They heard the gospel. Just hearing the gospel doesn't save you, according to Scripture, right? Verse 13, look at that. Now there's another one. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But when these have no root, they believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Okay? Fall away. Does that sound like a Christian, somebody who falls away from the faith? Okay. Okay. The ones on the rocks, they heard it, so they receive it with joy. They're like, I love that. I need some Jesus, and also need some of this, and I also need some of that. I, I, there's a time of testing, which means life got real hard, and I had to think, Jesus or, or, or these other things that made it really hard. You know, these things, I, I, I just got to choose. Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to throw Jesus away. I, these things. It's a time of testing, and I realized that that testing understood that I wasn't a Christian. That was a test, and I met the test, as Paul says, some of you should test yourselves. This is what Paul says. You should test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Well, here's what happens here. They test themselves, and they realize that they failed the test, and they fall away. So we have another person who's been sowed and realizes, hey, even though they received it with joy, even though they said, that's some good truth, and I love that, right? these people aren't saved. Okay? Again, number verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Okay? Uh, this would be the Christian who uh, maybe in youth group they got saved, right? They were teenagers, they got saved, they walked down the aisle, they, they you know they, they prayed a prayer into their hearts, and then they got baptized, and, and uh, you know they got their, they got turned sixteen, got their car. Stop seeing them at church, right? Uh, By the time they get into college, uh, their whole life just just looks deplorable. They're partying all the time. They don't they don't they use the God's name in vain. They have no community of uh, no Christian community of any sort. They don't go to church. They don't even they don't even reference God in their life other than when it's brought up before them like this, right? Right. This is this this is what it looks like. Right. They are the people who heard the word, but as they go on their way, as they live their life, as they grow up, right? They are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. These are people who are more concerned with the things that they get in this life than waiting for the blessed hope that we get to receive in Christ Jesus when he returns. So we have three people, three seeds that were planted, and so far we have no Christians. Although these people heard the gospel, some of these people even seemed like they responded positively to the gospel, and yet no Christian. But we have a a final one. And for the three people that we just addressed, God wants to get your attention. If that's you, like realize you need to be sure about your salvation. Right? And I'm thinking that if you're one of those three seeds, you're sitting here thinking, I'm not sure. Good. That's what the scripture is leading us to do. But there is a fourth. Right? Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who heard the word, they held fast to it in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit. Did you hear that? They bear fruit. That means that my fruit didn't save me, right? Me doing good works did not save me, but I heard the word. I responded to the word. I held fast to it, just like Paul is asking us to do. We're stable and steadfast. So we're not shifting, right? We're holding fast to it, right? With an honest and good heart. We're bearing fruit and we're doing it with patience. That's the one. That's the soil that produces the Christian, right? That seed is the one who is saved because they heard the gospel, they responded to the gospel, and their life was transformed. Does it mean they didn't do anything wrong in this time? Does it mean that they're perfect? Does this mean that they may have left church for a couple of weeks, maybe a few months, and you, know, you haven't seen them in a while, and you've got to check in on them, and you find out their marriage is pretty bad, and you've got to bring them into counseling, and you've got to fix up some stuff? Does it mean they don't deal with that? No, it means they deal with that. We all deal with that as Christians. Okay, but it's saying that they were stable and they were steadfast and they were immovable because they have the perseverance of the saints. They have the spirit inside of them that pushes them and that it, it re- remains them in their faith. We got to understand that. And, and I put it this way in three easy, three easy applicational steps. If you're like trying to be sure about your salvation right now, here's a great way to here's a great way to to, to assure that, or at least make sure you're not a Christian even. First way is this. Make sure you have a testimony of turning away from a life lived for yourself and now for God. That's the new path, right? You need to make sure that if you were, if I said, hey, could you share your testimony with me? Could you tell me how you became a Christian, right? Well, it looks like turning away from a life lived for yourself and now for God. I mean, that is a simple, this is a simple sentence of how someone becomes a Christian. Does your life look like that? Or does it look like some of these soils where yeah, there was a moment that I was like, oh, that looks good. And I went after Jesus and I saw something else I really liked and I started going after that and I never turned back. Right? That's, not, that's not a testimony of, of a Christian. Right? Number two, right, check your fruit. Right? And this is, this is, a, this is a, just a good example. Check your fruit. right? Uh, it's like checking your pulse. Can somebody tell me where my pulse comes from? My heart. Oh yeah, or God, yeah. But my heart, right? But, where, but when, when the doctors check your heart, what do they usually do? or poop like why don't they check your heart no because they know if you have a pulse here and here that's a pretty good that's pretty good i chance your your heart's beating right and I, what i'm saying this is is although your good works aren't your salvation right your good works aren't your salvation everybody in agreement with that this morning all right your good works are not your salvation they are just like your pulse they are the proof that your salvation is there right right the, okay my heart's beating i know that because i'm here okay you're a christian and i'm looking at your good fruit and i'm thinking all right yeah, I mean, there's, there's ample evidence in your life that your salvation is, that you have a salvation, right? Is everyone who does good things saved? No, but it's just like my pulse, right? It's a good example, it's a good representation that I have fruit that goes along with my repentance, okay? Number three, you need to continue in the faith. And what this means is, are you growing? Are you bearing fruit? And are you living in community? I mean, living in community with Christ, not your neighborhood or, or your, your local uh, You know, your local lodge down the street. What we're saying is, like, are you growing in your faith? Are you bearing fruit and are you living in community? And this isn't me telling you you're not a Christian. Unless it is, then it is. Okay, what this is, is more for you to have tools for you can start checking your own pulse and saying, am I a Christian? I mean, this is a great opportunity for me this morning to think, am I, I don't think I'm a Christian. Good, but this is exactly what Paul is wanting the Colossians to understand. If you're a Christian, you're going to be stable and steadfast and you're going to be continuing the faith. And if you're not... It's going to be blatantly obvious, and the, you know what? Christ still came to save you. You just have to understand that you are in opposition toward God, and, and that's really the full circle. This morning is that that's what you got to understand, right? And just like me uh, growing up, uh, when I was building that go kart, I needed all the right components. Right? I needed to understand how a go kart worked and how it was built in order to make it happen. Right? The same concept rings true in Christianity. I can't build my own salvation, right? But I do have some some tools here and some components that just help me assure that I am saved, right? Do I realize that I need to turn away from my sin? Do I realize I need to trust in Christ? And do, do I bear fruit in keeping with my repentance? I mean, those, those are components I need to, to, to make sure that I am continuing in my faith. What I'm saying this morning is as a Christian, you can do nothing better than continuing in the faith, growing, bearing fruit, living life in community, right? And I, I want just a little pre-counseling. When you stop coming to church for a few weeks, and your life starts being pretty miserable, and you skip your quiet time for a week, and your marriage starts flaring up. Like I want you to think that's because you're a Christian, your uh, Christian, your faith requires you to live in community, requires you to sit under the teaching of God, and that's your life reflecting this idea that you were living a uh, holy and pleasing life to God, and God's trying to get you back into that. And So pre-counseling is you need to be with God's people. You need to be sitting under God's word. And it's going to give you the assurance, and it's going to help you be sure that you're saved. You know, There's much more to say, but we don't have a lot of time. So, could you pray with me? God, we do thank you for your word, and just the way that your word tells it how it is, and how your word helps us just put our life in right, uh, right relationship with you uh, in Christ, uh, mainly. But also just the idea that when we read your scripture, we can test ourselves, Right, as Paul says, to test ourselves, to be sure that we're in the faith. Unless, of course, we fail to meet the test and realize that we're not saved. As Paul says, God, that is such a good, uh, a good truth for us this morning. To say we can, and it's a good thing for Christians to test their faith and make sure. It's a good thing for us to make sure that we have all the components right in our life. And I just pray this morning that, that people's faiths are, are assured in here. That God, people in here think, yes, this sermon affirmed. But God, I do pray that, that even as the four soils do, that it showed uh, a lot of other people uh, that, you know what, what I trusted in was, was not the atonement of Christ. What I trusted in was not the sufficiency of Christ, but was myself or something uh, else that does not save me. And I just pray, God. Uh, for those people, God, that your spirit would convict them, that they would turn away from a life, lived for themselves, and they would live for you. I just pray that as we go out this week, we'd keep that message uh, on the forefront, as we're sharing the gospel in our community, as we're inviting people to church, as we're telling people about the wonderful goodness of God, that we do not forget the work that he has done on our behalf to reconcile us to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.